0: Welcome to Idle Weekend. I'm Danielle Riando, and I'm here with my co-host Rob Zachney to wind down another week, this time another year. We're recording this on New Year's Eve, and this holiday weekend, we're joined by our friend, colleague, and Waypoint freelancer, Cameron Councilman. Cam, welcome to Idle Weekend.
1: Thank, thank you for having me. Oh,
0: very, very excited. Because this weekend, we're coming back from the holidays with friends and family and all the pleasures of domestic life, but we're also... Playing a lot of games about domestic life or the idea of it. And that got us thinking, why does so much of gaming and fandom revolve around versions of playing house? Now this is this has always been a topic pretty near and dear to me because I, I've been like a huge fan of the Animal Crossing series. But I know, Rob, you're especially playing Stardew Valley right now. And I think that got you thinking of some of this.
2: Yeah, I, uh, so I joined the Switch cult this <laughs> this holiday break uh my partner gave me a switch and i have been playing a lot of breath of the wild uh but good <laughs> a lot of stardew valley and that's kind of been the surprise hit for me uh how much i'm playing it and part of that was just i wanted to conserve battery life and it <laughs> you could play uh stardew for pretty long on one charge uh but but the other part of it is it is just a really you know Gently paced uh you know almost baby proofed in terms of fail states, uh you know rural life, not quite simulator, but it's this I- idol of of, ru- of rural life and um, you know I'm late to the party on this, but this was a this was a pretty significant uh you know breakthrough hit it felt like uh, a year or so ago, and it is interesting to me because I am enjoying the game, there is something compelling about it. But it is also striking to me how much it is literally about the satisfaction of, like, reliable returns on labor. <laughs> and also about, like, the encroaching dread of modernity. Um, and I don't think Stardew Valley, like, I think Stardew Valley is far from being alone on this. I think Stardew Valley is, uh, you know, its success is one of the clearest expressions of a more widely held, uh, you know, feeling or sentiment in in the game space, and uh, maybe in, in, you know, in the culture at large. Uh, but but I do think it's useful to look at Stardew uh, as as for for the ways it expresses uh, the, this anxiety. Ugh.
0: Yeah, Cam, do you have any experience with the the Stardewing?
1: No, I okay. I am uh, incredibly um, <coughs> resilient to Stardew Valley. <laughs>
0: Why is that?
1: <laughs> I I don't know. I I've had a hard time with games like that or or uh Harvest Moon. Like years ago, I tried to do a video series where I was playing the original Harvest Moon, uh but as a vegan, which oh. is it, which is very very hard. It's very Are very you hard. are you uh, vegan? Just uh, uh sometimes. So, okay, uh, cool. uh, flipping back and forth a little bit, but uh ever since that, which so a huge time sink, and I see Stardew Valley uh, and I'm like, oh, I could do something really cool with it, right? <laughs> like, this is definitely a game that will allow me to do that kind of thing. And I think the anxiety about uh, having to play it correctly or good or in a in a way that I find interesting has kept me away from it. I own it. I should just install it and play it.
0: <laughs> I mean, that's definitely a topic uh, we talk about on Idle Weekend. It, it comes back and, and forth all the time of, of the anxiety of playing right and then either not starting or never finishing games because we're not doing it right. That is definitely... You're in good hands here. You're among friends. Um, I'm already. That... I'm
2: already this close to restarting my game of Stardew. <laughs> oh, by really? The way. Uh, oh yeah. I'm like. <laughs> I, I. You know. I'm coming up toward toward the end of my first year, and I'm like, I really could have used those earlier growing seasons a lot more effectively than I did. Uh, I should just start it all over again, and this time <laughs> I'd I'd plant my crops a lot more wisely. Uh, I. would I'd, spend my resources more wisely so I can advance further down. And I sure wouldn't have built my chicken coop uh, in a place where a hidden shitty little shrub is blocking the door. So I can't even get in it. Oh, oh no. Like I, I got a chicken coop that I can't use. Uh, Cause I think there might be like, I think there might just be a, an, an unkillable tree in the world uh, on my forest, uh, on my forest farm. Uh, that's keeping me from getting into my chicken coop. Uh, so yeah, I I totally get that. Like, and believe me, there is nothing I find nothing appealing about the idea of going back to the start of Stardew Valley. Uh, but nevertheless, it's um that feeling that I could have a better run is is really mocking me right
1: now. Yeah, I think that there is a. Because cause Rob, you and I enjoy a lot of the same games, like, you know, city builders and things yeah. like that. And there is a strategy slash city builder inside of me that uh, it is screaming out in rage every time I make a mistake in that kind of game. <laughs> um, and I just can't. I don't know. Seems like a lot of emotional commitment to play those.
0: I'm yeah. I'm afraid of starting it for very similar reasons. I, I'm mostly afraid of starting it uh because I've been on a hundred percenting streak lately, or not if not a hundred percenting, like a ninety-eight percenting streak, I guess you could call it. Uh you're
2: getting all but the really dumbest of, yes. of, the, of the achievements. That's
0: how yeah. I approached uh, Breath of the Wild anyway. I put like two hundred and fifty hours into that game so far, and uh I'm not getting all the Korok seeds. Like if I see one, I'll get it. But for me, that was about uh, seeing every place in the game. I wanted to see every inch of the land. So weird things like that, and also in in um <clears throat> like in Prey, of course, doing multiple playthroughs where you know I see everything, or I see different things each time, or or I make sure to try everything. I'm, I'm doing this weird thing, basically, uh, that I keep doing. This weird obsessive compulsive, needing to see all the stuff in a game. Um, and I, I just did all the ultimate challenges in Mario vs. Rabbids, for example. So I am deathly afraid of going into Stardew Valley and uh, and having this as well and just not being able to stop playing it. And, it. and it ruins my life because I can't stop playing it. That's what I'm worried about.
2: It It's, it's dangerous. It's got a really addictive rhythm. Uh, each day in Stardew Valley lasts about 15 minutes I think of playtime and there's a lot of routine so you wake up you go out and you you know water your crops and you tend your farm and then you bum around the city and well the city the the village yeah and you talk to people Uh, and it's got all those elements right there's the relationship building aspect you go and you try to give people gifts that they will find thoughtful so they'll like you more um and that ties into a dating sim element as well uh and then there's you know little social events um and then there's various there's a dungeon you can go into stardew valley is built on top of a haunted mine uh for some reason which (laughs) doesn't seem idyllic to me but (laughs) nevertheless uh it's it's something you do uh in addition to of course the requisite uh fishing mini game oh god but it's it's interesting to me because like so, I, I draw a line between, like, this and, say, The Sims. Like, I feel like The Sims, a lot of... And I haven't played very much of The Sims. Like, I got into, like, The Sims 2 ages ago and The Sims 1. But, like, um, I've totally been out, basically off The Sims for, for ages. Um, but those games kind of feel like fantasies of, like, postmodern a- acquisitive... Like yuppie culture in <laughs> yeah. some ways. Um uh, whereas Stardy Valley is very much like, yeah, you wake up, you go, you tend your garden, you get tired, like, you know, uh taking a hoe to your field and uh, you know, planting and fertilizing and all this stuff. It takes a while. There's a lot of like boring maintenance work involved with it. And it's not like your award is some sort of explosion in wealth or um you know, some sort of like blinged out farm. Like that's that's really not what you're building towards. Like eventually, maybe it gets there, but for the most part, you're like, oh boy, you know, I can buy, I can I can buy a nicer axe, and I can finally do something with that stump uh, in the in the yard. That's great. Uh, but yeah. it's interesting to me how, like again, small, humble, domestic the fantasy of Stardew is, and that feels, um, I don't know, it feels like a little bit of a shift.
0: Yeah. I, I, we've talked about my obsession with Animal Crossing in the past as well, but it seems very relevant here in terms of uh, part part of the fantasy is that sort of warmth uh, of doing boring things uh, among friends, like among a, a <clears throat> like a place of love and comfort and warmth, and just enjoying that and having that place for you to go to. I, I mean, I'm sure we could we could armchair uh, psychology this a little bit, <laughs> especially in terms of. I think how bad a year everybody had. Um, Mm -hmm. uh, But there's something there. I sure think there's something there uh, in terms of finding comfort in these places that are domestic and relaxed and comforting and colorful and that they kind of have a... They have a wonderful sense of you can always go home. You don't even have to get in a car. You don't even have to get on a train or a plane or anything like that. Plane, train, or automobile. You can just be home instantaneously or in a place like home instantaneously once you sort of turn this on and i think that is enormously appealing it is for me anyway certainly
2: yeah literally the opening of stardew is your grandfather on his deathbed saying that uh, he's giving you a letter and he's saying someday uh the hell of modern life or something is going to be overwhelming to you uh and on that day uh open this letter Uh, and the next thing you see is your character grown up in the shitty little cubicle uh and <laughs> you've had enough and you open the letter and it's the deed to uh to the to the family farm uh, nice. in in Stardew Valley. But I don't know, Cam like Cam, I know you're a little more into the Sims. Like do you think that's a fair characterization of The Sims, or do you think that's really more reading into what the Sims marketing tends to put forward?
1: <laughs> I I mean
2: uh
1: as a, as a fan of The Sims, when you said that I, I couldn't bling out a Stardew Valley farm, I <laughs> was immediately disappointed. So I don't know how much of an unfair caricature uh, it is. I do think that they uh, the, the game has leaned into long-form storytelling in a way that is almost uncapturable by the the marketing materials. Mm-hmm. um so yeah you're buying things and you're kind of constantly accruing stuff but even some of the more recent expansions have added the ability to buy used items in this world of acquisition and interesting moving forward yes yeah, so you can kind of i don't know like live out live out your exact fantasy of domesticity if that's being like kind of scrappy and poor and trying to make your way up through this neighborhood of of upwardly mobile people or if it's uh, you know, doing the traditional kind of sims one and two thing that you were talking about, um so I don't know i mean i I think that the Sims is an omnibus product in that any caricature is is true about it yeah um and, and curious, do the do yeah.
2: use things look different? like are they distressed yeah or, like do you have to go to like Thrifts in the uh in the sims world to, to get these things or? no,
1: I mean it's all in the same interface, but yeah it's yeah. the they are more distressed versions of the the cheaper oh, things shit. yeah, yeah yeah, so full
2: on millennial life simulator <laughs> exactly exactly I don't remember exactly ways. which expansion did that, but but yeah, so I think one of the things that's jumping out at me when I look at a game like stardew um is that. Okay, let me back up a second. I had this yep. realization uh, over the holidays that literally maybe the best or second best job I've ever worked uh, was a factory job. Uh, when I was in college, I worked in a factory in Northwest Indiana. Uh, it was a union shop. The, the wages were good. Uh, you, the worst thing that would happen to you is occasionally you'd have to pull a double shift, uh, 16 hours, but you'd get time in half huh. uh, for that second shift. Uh, which meant that, you know, you'd be sitting there and you'd want to be somewhere else. You'd be tired. It was hot. Uh, the factory was noisy. But then you'd also be thinking, and, you know, f- for a kid uh, of like, you know, 19 years old, uh, the idea that you just spent basically a full day in one place and you're going to walk out of there with like 250, 300 bucks in your <laughs> pocket is like staggering. Like that, like, but <laughs> the thing was, it was, it, you know, it definitely was, uh, not a terribly hard job, but, like, it was, you know, it was a factory job. It could be, it could be a little tough. Um, and when the factory floor, you know, crested up to, like, 110 degrees, uh, if, not, if not higher on, during heat waves, uh, it, got, it got pretty brutal. But what I loved about it was, like, I have worked w- a lot of different wage jobs. What was different about this one is you worked hard, Uh, But there's also less bullshit to deal with. You just sort of got into the rhythm of working in the factory, you know, moving the moving the widgets from the one machine to the other and pushing the button and then catching the next run as it came down the line. Uh, You got into that rhythm. And if you did it, nobody was like, you know, on your ass. Uh, But then the other part of it was you're also paid pretty well for that, Hmm. Uh, you know, very well by. Uh, you know, the standards of most modern wage labor uh, at this point. Even at that time, it was kind of an astonishingly good deal. Um, but the reason I look back on it so fondly is we talk a lot in this culture about, like, the dignity of work. <laughs> um, but actually, a lot of the jobs I've worked, particularly wage jobs, didn't have much dignity at all. Uh, a lot of them had a lot of places where uh, dignity was sort of stripped from you or, or, or impinged upon, um, this kind of wage labor was, it did feel dignified because you felt like you'd earned your fatigue, your exhaustion, but then you'd also been well compensated for your time. And that's all people expected from you. Uh, there, was no, there was no bullshit mythos of like, you know, giving 110% to the factory, <laughs> right? You know, we're all, we're all team players here. Yeah. No, you, were, you came on, you did your part, you got your money. Um, and so I look back on that really fondly. And even like from this vantage, that almost seems like a fantasy in itself. Like I'm like, did that really happen? Did I ever <laughs> like have a, you know, really well compensated job where I went into a building basically for eight hours and came out, you know, with nothing on my mind and a lot of money in my pocket? That was that was pretty cool. Um, I think Stardew taps into that a little bit. Like it's definitely fussier, <laughs> uh, but it does sort of have this idea of labor as being something that will pay off like you're not going to like everything you're doing in stardew valley doesn't just like hold you in the same place you're not just like subsisting in stardew valley like it feels like at times but usually when the harvests come in you know a lot of money comes in and that's when you can sort of like you know climb the ladder of production or or you know personal wealth whatever you can you can get somewhere in stardew valley and it's it's hard work but You're moving forward. And I feel like that has become a really compelling theme. Uh, I suspect I have a suspicion that might also be like part of the reason behind like the interest in job simulator uh, (laughs) type games. But like just these just these fantasies of doing a good job and being rewarded for it, I think, have become compelling and interesting to people in a way they wouldn't have been 10, 15 years ago. Uh, and I'm not entirely sure their their popularity is like a great sign for the gener- the health <laughs> of this generation.
0: Yeah, you know, Janine has actually written on, on Waypoint for us a couple of times about this, about these like satisfaction, like satisfaction simulators almost. I forget what she called them, but fantasy of mm-hmm. work or something. I've, she had a pretty great phrase for it, but she's done a couple of free plays on these kinds of, you know, uh, there was like a bullshit be a, a you know, copywriter or something uh, sim for like a, a boring company. And she was like, I found this ridiculously satisfying. What does that say? You know, there's a there I do feel like this is a sort of an upcoming genre. This is an upcoming theme. It's something that we see a lot of. It's it's, you know, I don't I don't know. I don't know what it says. I don't know what it says about us, but it is it is certainly a thing. And I, I am also sort of prey to this. I, I sure love a game that makes me feel like I did something. I accomplished something. Like it's it's like a wonderful feeling of accomplishment, of of satisfaction, of of, of having done something meaningful and, and satisfying and God uh, this is this also ties into my downward spirals when I don't feel like I'm accomplishing anything in games, and mm-hmm. then I get very mad at myself, and I'm like, "Why am I not learning Spanish right now?" So, I guess it's all it's all tied <laughs> <Right>. in.
1: <laughs> I mean, what's interesting too is that that um, that that genre, like the job simulator kind of stuff, or uh, the Euro Truck Simulator games, or any of those. The, there's the farming simulator game as well. That those. Are are being parts of them are being gamified into other genres. I mean, I think the Stardew Valley thing uh, is you know part of the lineage of Harvest Moon and all of that. But the that early access game Jalopy have you have you played that no. or seen that? No, so it's I've seen about it. you. Yeah, uh, yeah, I haven't played it either, but I've just watched some video stuff uh, of it. But it's like you and your uncle, I want to say, are traveling cross country, and you have to get uh, different. Uh, parts of car parts and salvage them and buy them and do all this kind of stuff to get your jalopy across the country so it has that kind of really finicky detail oriented work of like the minute details of knowing how the car works and then it's inside of a quote-unquote more traditional game uh structure of get from point a to point b and you know learn a little lesson about yourself along the way and i really wonder like you know how long until that's in uh you know a battlefield game
0: uh, for sure
1: yeah <laughs> right where you, where you have to like manage your gun and you know like give it a name and then carve into the the God, stock i think right?
2: <laughs> I, mean, I would like, too right 100 just like give me yeah give me the like infantry squad simulator like campaign of like all right well the day's fighting is done You know, you killed X number of the Hun, but now you have to clean your guns. Yeah, clean
0: your guns. How much gruel do you give them? Fill those sandbags. You know,
1: Mm -hmm. and like talk (laughs) to the people in your squad and learn a little bit about them. And they're all one. You know, is voiced by Jean Luc Picard. Oh my god,
0: (laughs) I'm I'm sold Uh, on this. Actually, like that's more interesting to me than much of the the moment to moment tactics of fighting a (laughs) war. I, wanna, I want, you know, Battle Chef Simulator, you know? Mm-hmm. Not Battle yeah. Chef Brigade, which, which is a perfectly fine game that I, I've en- enjoyed on some level. But I want to be the cook in a company and, like, have to manage ingredients and make all the you know, your soldiers happy and as much as you can with limited resources. Like, that, give me that. That I would enjoy.
2: <laughs> um, God, there's, I wish I would remember what this book was. Uh, I'm going to see if I can pull it up real quick. Uh, but it was a book written by uh, a Soviet official who was in charge, or was one of the people in charge of maintaining food production in Leningrad during the uh, Nazi siege. Oh, um, and it's it's a pretty harrowing book, but it's a harrowing book through the lens of. Uh, Ingredient tables and calorie counts and all the things that like there's this like really breathtaking uh, moment where uh, he's talking about like, you know, uh, several months into the siege. But before the uh, the waterways froze over and uh, they could start trucking things over the over the river uh, into the city, um, they found a paper factory in Leningrad uh, full of um, cellulose that hadn't been turned into paper. So it just had like raw, like un, like unprocessed, like cellulose. Um, And that like became the foundation for a raft of new, like recipes uh, that they could like feed people and keep them on like at least a slightly more than starvation uh, ration. I don't know how well it worked. Like it's a pretty grim fucking book, (laughs) Mm -hmm. uh, but it is like, this interesting view of a major historical event from this really procedural quotidian perspective of like, how do we stretch whatever was left in the city by the time the the Germans surrounded it? How do you stretch that uh, for, you know, basically an entire summer and, and fall uh, into the winter? It's a hell of a book. I'll have to see if I can dig it up. Uh, But yeah, I the Stardew thing and the job simulator things they they are separate strains uh for sure. I think the Stardew thing is is also tapping into what you were sort of talking about in the uh in the intro Danielle this, the this the domestic uh <clears throat> angle of things. The cuddly, as well. the
0: warm, you know.
2: Yeah. And that seems like it's um even more broadly resonant, right? Like when you know, Cam, you and I were talking about this the other day, but, like, last winter, didn't Blizzard put out an Overwatch uh, comic that was literally just, like, fantasies of the Overwatch heroes, like,
1: spending the holidays around their
0: houses? Oh, yes.
1: <laughs> yeah, just, like, the the beautiful... They are real because they have access to domestic situations. <laughs> Qu- you know, quote-unquote real, right? Yeah. They have backstories. Uh, the the engineer guy. What's his name? He's got uh, one Torbjorn? Eye. Yeah, Torbjorn. He's got like a million children. He's Santa oh, yeah. Claus or whatever. Oh, and yeah. like, he's got a heart because uh, we, we've seen it now. We know. Um, yeah, that, 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 that allows us to project, like the notion of domesticity itself allows us to project so much more on these characters than even like the one-on-one pairings or whatever uh, that we would normally do.
0: Yeah, it sort it's of a big like shortcut. goes beyond fan fiction at that point. it, it in in a way. Um, and a, I'm not an expert on fan fiction, obviously, <laughs> but it's it sort of it's sort of taking <laughs> from that uh, world and actually sort of, um, I don't know, it's imposing these these ideas about what it is to be a, a human being onto these like absolutely, you know, cartoonish characters. And there's something kind of wonderful about that. I mean, i I'm not really much of an overwatch player. I enjoyed the game, but, I'm interested in the fandom of Overwatch, and I'm interested in these comics, and I'm interested in in how they're sort of humanizing these these people, you know, these characters, uh, in in really interesting ways. You know, it's like okay, there's there's an a- an intelligent ape guy, and uh, here here's him with I I don't know what his scenario was, but you know whatever it was, you know, hanging out with his ape friends or whatever. It's it's nice. I, there's there's something to to be said about this. The nice the nicing. Of video games, or, or the nicing of, of sort of mainstream video games, it's, it's there's
1: someone listening to this and steam <laughs> is flying out of their I'm head. I'm right sure. Now.
0: I'm so sorry. I don't remember what Winston's family <laughs> situation was. I apologize. I, I'm not a Winston expert. Uh, but, yeah, but yeah, and actually,
2: Winston's yes, well, yes. I mean, Winston's family situation probably isn't great.
0: Oh, I'm sorry. His chosen family, then his chosen family. Okay,
2: yeah, you know.
0: <laughs> Who he likes right. to hang out with. Who he enjoys getting a beer and watching a movie with. You know? Or mm-hmm. or a banana. Yeah. I don't know. Whatever Winston's preferences are. You know? Banana bear.
2: That's a hell of a smoothie. <laughs> Delicious. Uh, a <laughs> lot of foam.
0: I was going to say. I um, Oh, go ahead. Go ahead, Rob.
2: Well, no. But do you think. So the nice thing of video games. Sort of like making things like cute and domestic. And like making everybody like rec- recontextualizing every character uh around a home life. Do you like That's part of a broader trend I think we've seen uh in the uh this is going to sound derogatory it really isn't. Uh like the post Tumblr era where like okay so the <laughs> yeah. 90s aesthetic was all edgy and attitude and all the shit and then like the internet kind of democratizes a lot of like art creation and fan creation and it turns out what people seem to resonate the most with uh, is sort of uh, like, like cuter, warmer uh, aesthetics. That yeah. seems to be what is maybe the most popular, at least within those sort of, uh, you know, arts and crafts uh, you know type communities. Um, communities of creatives, I guess the way I'd put it. But do you think those domestic situations are being primarily driven by... This sort of change in like what is the dominant aesthetic taste, uh, or do you think it's more reflective of just where like the this generation, uh, is at in terms of what its fantasies are?
1: Oh,
0: I don't know, <laughs> I really don't know. Um,
1: I think I don't know if it is generation specific, if only because like the the multimedia franchise empires of of even you know GI Joe or Transformers the part of the transmedia buy-in for those things even in the 80s was look what they do in their downtime
0: <laughs> true
1: that's true so <laughs> true. right like in some ways i mean maybe it's just that that I guess I would say you know my generation are are primed to that type of storytelling because mm-hmm. that was the major move made during the eighties and nineties, like the teenage mutant Ninja turtles in the early nineties are very cool because they're eating pizza at home and they're also fighting you know shredder in very the streets. True. That's a really good point
0: very true yeah, and i was I always liked that stuff the most weirdly like as as a kid when I played with my ninja turtles, and I had almost every turtle, I was a ninja turtle maniac. I often like pictured them hanging out and like having parties at home. Like they would, they would just invite people over for parties all the time. That was what my Ninja Turtles did. So, yeah, I think you're right. I think you're onto something here.
2: (laughs) Well, yeah, and the Ghostbusters lived in a rad fire, like old
1: firehouse. I was literally Um, about to be like, I had the 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 replication like Barbie's Funhouse, but not Barbie's Funhouse. The Ghostbusters rad. Uh you know, Firehouse. No, it had my a sister's cool Barbies may have occasionally made their way in
2: there. <laughs> uh, I mean, yeah, <laughs> yeah, no, for for sure that that that's a good point. Um, see, for me, I guess I look at it like, and maybe that's just because I look at everything excessively now through the lens of uh, you know, the you know the current uh, you know, economic political hellscape we're in, <laughs> uh, but like. I look at a lot of this stuff and I kind of worry I'm seeing a yearning for a domestic life, a domestic security denied a lot of people, right? Like there yeah, there has always been an element of uh, you know, imagine you know all these characters hanging out together, um, you know, the the certainly a lot of those fantasies involved basically putting characters in some form of of treehouse. <laughs> uh where where they could where they could all hang out. Um and it was double for like young adult uh lit. Uh but at the same time like when I look at you know all this you know all kinds of like fan art and storytelling around characters that situates them in these really <laughs> for me almost like cloyingly wholesome <laughs> uh settings uh but like it just makes me wonder like how, like if a huge part of that is also being driven by the growing dread that like oh, maybe we're the generation that doesn't get to own a house right like maybe you know maybe like this entire like you know this everything this culture has sort of said like is you know a, a quiet normal life uh all of it is sort of out of our reach right now so, what do I find the most compelling? It's these games, it's these creations, it's these stories that say, "Well, for you know, in this in this situation, it is within reach. You can imagine it."
0: I think, I think that's absolutely. I, I think there's definitely something there to that. I also think there's something about loneliness here in general, and I don't know if this is in any way unique to games or, or media that's sort of aimed at. Uh, towards younger people i suppose Mm -hmm. uh but there's a lot here about a lot of these fantasies are about sort of fitting in in some way right having friends at least having a group of friends having cool people around who like you uh you know the ninja turtles you know Raphael is a little bit of a loner but like he had his brothers man he had friends you know everybody got to fit in in these like sort of happy scenarios Mm -hmm. right everybody got to like be friends and have a place in the world for them, whether they were a mutant or whatever, or a robot that transforms into something, or a weird nerd in terms of uh, the Ghostbusters or whatever else. A lot of these are fantasies about being pals, hanging out, having fun, you know, being part of a team or whatever. And I don't know if that's like a uniquely American kind of thing or or more of a universal uh, human, uh, you know, tendency, but... A light, whenever I think about the domestic, like warm thoughts of the domestic, it, it has to do with that, like with a family unit or friends or a chosen family or, or a team, you some sort of a fantasy of togetherness as opposed to, you know, sort of being isolated, which I know a lot of people, not everybody, of course, this is not a major generalization, but a lot of people who love video games a whole lot, maybe had some time that was isolated or maybe had some time that was not as uh, pleasant or with friends, or that sort of thing. So part of that appeal for me, certainly, I'm speaking for myself, is that is in sort of imagining happy friendships and you know teammates and cool stuff like that.
1: Yeah, in in film history, when we talk about like the the cultural production of the '80s, um, it gets it often gets split into two different kinds of sectors or two mm-hmm. different forms. So one's like two different movies, basically encapsulate yeah. the whole process. Rambo two. <laughs> And uh, uh, Back to the Future, right? Mm. (laughs) So one is a yearning or is a statement about individualism and hard bodies and action and a person who could go stand out in the world and change things, right? So pure Ronald Reagan. Yep. (laughs) Uh, Then the other one is a yearning for the 1950s, right? Of a time when things were more wholesome and you can do a comparative of the 80s to the 50s. And what's interesting, like what you're talking about, Danielle, is that With video games, we see, or it seems to be that we can see a combination of those two impulses. That the Overwatch heroes can kick ass all day like Rambo, and they can go home and have a domestic situation where rad friends hang out and (laughs) you know express cultural values and things like that together at night. Yeah, Um, and I wonder if like the the access to those different media forms right that you can play the game and then have a reflective experience about it as opposed to just sitting and watching the movie
0: yeah Um, i like that read a lot actually a lot copyright me this moment i endorse it with a a stamp right there (laughs) 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 my last yes uh, uh, sorry go Go ahead rob go go ahead
2: go ahead no, no, no. Go for it.
0: Oh, I was just going to say I uh um I don't know why but I I keep thinking about Breath of the Wild in this regard mm-hmm. as mm-hmm. well, which also sort of toes that line with both uh allowing you to go off on an adventure obviously whenever you feel like it and then go to these like really cute little villages where everybody has like a routine and a time and like there's a family who has dinner in Loralin Village at like 5:30 p.m. every night and you could kind of go and hang out with them and have dinner with them and and things like that. I I'm weirdly Reflecting on my many, many hours on Breath of the Wild here as well <laughs> with the same frame.
2: I've spent a lot of time in Breath of the Wild so far just like trying different recipes. Yes. Uh, which which feels like something. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I think th- there is also that element of um, there's always been the interest in the life simulator and I think for a long time like maybe we conned ourselves into thinking that's because it was, like, expanding what was possible within the simulation. Like, it felt like a form of technological progress, right? It's like, oh, man, like, you know, Shenmue lets you do this, right? Like, it, there, there's a game where, like, characters are following their own, like, schedules and routines. and And you can kid yourself that, like, what you're interested in is, like, ah, like, what intricate systems and (laughs) new possibilities for interaction that we've got but what really you're into is like I can go to this this coffee shop at 5.30pm and sit down across from this character and have a little conversation (sighs) it'll always work yes I can all like I can inhabit this space with these characters and I can become one of them Uh, and it's actually not about like you know a, a, a ridiculous like holodeck type experience it's about a fantasy of a small town life that because of the way it's like served up reliably, it's still kind of all about you, but not in that like terrifying uh solipsistic way video games
0: can be <laughs> Yeah, right. Mm-hmm. Where,
2: where it's like everything feels like it's queued up just for your enjoyment. It feels like life is happening around you and other like the, the these are other people you can go interact with. Yeah. Um. Yeah. I don't know. It's, you know this is this is kind of where I've been left with uh, with stardew though is like i am i am enjoying it it is interesting to me the places where it is still kind of worryingly transactional i guess um i don't know like i don't know if anyone has had uh great success in creating models of like friendship or romantic relationships <laughs> that don't end up feeling mm-hmm. weirdly um
0: transactional <laughs>
2: yeah Because... Yeah. Yeah, it because it definitely feels like, well, you give the person the right gift, and then they like you more, and then you have new interactions, and et cetera, and it all feels like, you know, maybe there's no way around it, but after a certain point, it just, it starts to worry that it's a little bit, uh, it, it leaves me down gross lines of thought, yeah. I guess is, is the way it feels, is like, well, uh, you know, Penny, I'm only at two hearts, I better go see, <laughs> you better go listen to her bullshit right now and get a sense of what gift she might be into and then go and get it from my uh, gift chest that I got in my house. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, it's, um, it's, it's a game that I'm both interested in playing it myself, but then I'm really interested in how popular it got, right? Like how yeah. resonant this game was.
0: I, maybe I'll maybe I'll dip a toe in, aka fall in and drown in this game. You know, four hundred hours of it or something. Like that. <laughs> maybe that'll happen. <laughs>
2: that I know is my, what will happen.
0: I know my girlfriend got real into it about a year ago. She definitely played a, a good solid seventy hours of it. So oh, that's probably inevitable, especially if it's on Switch. God. Um. Any any further thoughts about about uh, domestic warmth and games and and what it what it means. Or shall we? Or shall we move on to our our correspondence?
1: Can Can I talk about one little thing?
0: Oh, please do, yeah. please
1: do. What about Resident Evil Seven?
0: Oh, that's the other side, isn't oh, it?
1: Oh man, the <laughs> damn it, Pam. <laughs> right, which is the exact thing you're talking about. It's all the things you're talking about, but the the other way. Oh yeah. Hmm. Mm-hmm. I got I mean, to maybe the Christmas feast. can just leave it at that if you want,
2: but I, I... no, but no. You tossed this grenade uh, in, in this conversation. Now you have to jump on it. Um, I don't think that's how grenades work. Well, look, I'm like forty percent on this, but in, in this case, look, look. I have a negative KDA uh, oh, okay. in in most shooters, so like I'm just going by what I do. Uh, sorry, guys, I fucked it up again. Let me, let me jump on that. Uh, anyway. Do, it's an exciting thought but i guess i'm not entirely sold on it because resident evil 7 yeah it's like you're you're trapped in some sort of domestic like domestic nightmare you're trapped in a crazy house but is it tapping into traditional like themes of domesticity and and like the things that we draw
1: warmth and security from. Mm-hmm. I well, I, I don't know if it's tapping into things that we actually draw warmth and security from, but the narrative, right, that that's being pushed on you—not the actual game's narrative, but what the characters are saying—is mm-hmm. like, uh, here's this nightmare scenario where we're like trying to get you to eat guts and and uh, you know be oh, infected by this virus thing and all these weird yeah. things. <laughs> and and once you do it enough, and once you die enough times, and once we chop you up into enough pieces you will enjoy what this family is, right? Which is the, the worst, most abusive kind of uh, relationship, but I think huh. I think <laughs> yeah. really yeah. kind of a real domestic situation, too, in some ways, yeah. right? Like, once this happens enough, you will be used to it and enculturated into it. Um, and so, I mean, it's, it's, the exa- it's not a warm, fuzzy feeling, even a little bit, uh, but it does feel very real, like I thought when I played it, at least. Felt like a, an yeah. authentic... Uh, enculturation method
2: I guess I can say it because yeah Danielle did you did did you play much of this or did you did you keep it at arm's length so
0: I played some of this and only during like a waypoint video during a stream so like I've only played like an hour of this game-ish and and part of that was literally uh, Danica with a with a VR headset on and me controlling the game Uh, and it was whew that was a way to play that game let me tell you. <laughs> yeah,
2: I don't. I, I <laughs> cannot imagine. No. Danica is a no. champion because
0: I would have hurled all over the couch if that were me. But um, yeah, I I uh, so I've played a bit of it. I I got up to like Christmas dinner basically. Um, mm-hmm. so I yeah. I kind of know what's going on there. Uh, it's not you know fully unravelled to me, but I've obviously also watched other streams and and read other things about it. Uh, for sure. Uh, to me, it it seemed to be playing with like very very traditional horror tropes, just in an incredibly. Uh, effective way (laughs) certainly i mean domestic horror has has always been like a huge part of the horror genre you know the Mm -hmm. the twisting of what's supposed to be the happy family tropes right the the twisting of what what a a nice mother does for her children the twisting of of you know all the uh the usual family roles and the usual gender roles and the usual you know sort of Uh, fifties fifties vision of what family is right the the absolute perversion of it which is uh i've always enjoyed quite a bit because i'm not the biggest fan of what the fifties tropes are either of course so i i've always enjoyed horror that that felt very much like well your domestic bliss is actually hell so get over it mm
2: -hmm. Uh, (laughs) yeah and resident evil 7 is definitely um Leaning on that stuff hard, yeah. like in terms of aesthetic, the family feels like time stopped for them in the seventies, sure. yeah. um, which is very like like this game is so aware of Gone Home, uh, it's it's eerie, uh, like this this feels like the the Resident Evil. That you make right after you've played gone home, yeah sure and, and watch the Texas chainsaw
1: massacre right that's yeah exactly, <laughs> yeah. And, and then
2: you had a lot to drink uh, <laughs> and you made a game off the notes you made uh the night before uh, it, it works it does work, but the aesthetic like the the ruins of what this family was back when they were quote unquote normal uh all indicate like people for whom time stopped in like yeah seventies early eighties they have the basically. They have a lot of the shit that, like, my dad had in the, you know, that that was, like, around my house when I was growing up. Uh, But you do have, like, one of the main monsters, because there's, like, three major, like, antagonists uh, in the game, all representing some aspect of family. Uh, But in particular, um, you know, the one that seems resonant with what you were saying, Danielle, is, like, the mother figure... Is all just guilt and guilt tripping and nagging and blame and castigation and judgment. Uh, And like literally there's sequences where, you know, there's a sequence where you're playing the daughter trying to get away from her and she's just following you through the house basically like screaming at you like why are you you know why did you leave us why are you continually rejecting us like all we try to do is support you we try to we try to love you and care for you. and it's nightmarish uh because it is like the cranked up to 11 like hell version of just the shittiest interactions <laughs> you know you might have ever had with your parent yeah um and it's like this is the oh yeah just imagine if it was just all the way toxic uh and now she's (laughs) she's an undead like hunting machine (laughs) uh so yeah i i think that that does fit um and again i I don't think it's an accident that like the fact that the family represents this decayed middle class like affluence from the 70s and 80s right like that this is a family that was comfortable and now they're uh now they're fucked up zombies. Yeah, that, and that they're trying they're like to own land.
0: Yeah, they've got a lot yes. of land, like a ton, <laughs> right? Oh,
2: God. yeah. Yeah, I think this was um, something that Matt Wise I think might have written in in, in a blog post about uh, origins of Southern Gothic. Hmm. Mm. Uh, which is just that, like, if you're from if you're from like the industrial North or New England or something, it can be a little harder to imagine you do not have large expanses of country countryside where you have like massive old family plantations whose wealth is a century or more in the past um it's not as much of a thing uh but it very much is in the south uh, i i gather that like yeah. uh, a lot of like you know patrician southern families uh over time you know the wealth eroded um but the monuments to it did not, hmm. um, and so like you actually do have a lot of you have a lot of places that are not terribly unlike, uh, you know the the, the the mansion grounds in Resi Seven.
0: Hmm. God, yeah, I do need to finish that game as well.
1: <laughs> You're probably okay. And- 50 years. I've,
0: I've experienced some of it. You know.
2: Yeah. I like that game, but I don't game, know. I think you you know liked Alien Isolation.
0: I, I think you might dig it. loved yeah. Alien oh, Isolation. True. So, yeah. I might, I might do well with uh, Resident Evil. But yeah, very, very good points. Uh, we have a, a pretty resonant letter that, that I feel like talks about some of this. Uh, maybe, maybe a little more uh, adjacent to some of this. Yeah. Uh, but uh, this comes from Nick K., And Nick writes, As you said, this fall, in 2017 in general, has been rough in a lot of ways. As an American, there's been no shortage of troubling developments across the year. Because of this, I've been thinking about hope lately and what that means. I think it's important to value hope when things seem bleak. When I say hope, I don't mean blind optimism, but instead an enduring trust in the power of rationality and compassion. It seems easy to portray darkness and nihilism through video games and media, but it seems a bit harder to capture the power of hope. Oftentimes these attempts are reduced to tidy, happy endings. When I try to think of video games uh, where hope, as I know it, is portrayed honestly, I come up blank. The closest example I can think of is a scene in Dragon Age Inquisition where the protagonist and company pick themselves up after a terrible loss and sing around a campfire. Talk about twee. So my question is this, what does hope mean to you? What are some examples where hope is eloquently evoked in games or movies? Keep the podcast coming. Keep fighting the good fight, Nick K.
2: I should be clear. Nick K wrote Talk About Twee in the top copy of the letter. That was not an editorial yeah, report. no! That, from that was the
0: letter. <laughs> I did not do any of my usual editorializing there.
2: <laughs> Fuck this bullshit. Danielle Riando. <laughs> 17.
0: Oh man. Um
2: so eloquent expressions of hope. Hmm. You know,
0: I'm playing something right now that actually somewhat resonates on this and I think it's partially because it's it's not really a, a terribly um the, the narrative is entirely, you know, pretty subtle. There's not really any dialogue or anything like that. But it, it's it's you know, some unsubtle metaphors you could say. Uh, I'm finally playing Hob which is a game that probably would have made my goatee list if I had played it before I had to write my my GOATI list. But it's basically a, a uh, an entire world uh, that's a puzzle. Uh, it's very people have called it very Zelda. Like I actually think it's much more platformery and and sort of uh, generally puzzle like than than an actual Zelda game. But it's it's generally of that vein. Um, where the entire world is kind of messed up and screwed up, and you're kind of putting it back together by traversing the land. And there's clearly been some disease or something uh, to the land, and you're you're restoring things. And I think that's, you know, it's a little on the nose, certainly. Uh, but I I am not a subtle person. I'm not a subtle woman, so I'm totally cool with that. And I I'm appreciating that particular metaphor for hope, certainly. Um, and I also. <sighs> God, I, I think Wolfenstein this year also had uh, some interesting things to say about hope uh, because it was a game very much about uh, fighting a, a probably unwinnable fight and very much about the point of resisting is to resist, not necessarily to win and to uh, kind of find what you can in that. And that especially resonated, I think, this year. And I think I think it did for a lot of people. I think it did for many folks uh, in terms of this was a hell of a timely game. <laughs>
1: I am racking my brain for, okay, I need to locate my hope first. Cam, what do you got? Yeah. I, mean, I, <laughs> I, I, I think that, uh, with the, with the, who is the letter writer? I'm sorry. Nick K. Nick, Nick uh, K. Nick I think that, that when you portray hope, uh, when you when you think about hope within the traditional game format of a character exists, and this is you know standard plotting mechanism, mm. a character exists, they run into a problem, something bad happens to them, they run into a problem again, and they overcome, and then that's the end of the narrative, right? This is every uh, blockbuster film, this is every AAA video game narrative across the board. I think it's hard to get to hope there without that kind of pat ending that that Nick Kay is talking about. Um, because uh, that's the end of the thing, right? Like, at the moment of hopefulness of the dawn rising over the bleak horizon, we stop. Mm-hmm. Like, that's where we don't get it. Um, I think for, for games to do that effectively, and I can't think of really good examples either, but I can see a world in which uh, if we dropped some of those uh, basic screenwriting best practices, and we began from a state of the enemy has been defeated, now so what? Um, I think there's a lot more maneuverability for games about hope. And that doesn't make for good narrative design, quote-unquote good narrative design, because it breaks patterns. Um, But I think that that's where that could emerge. And I think Hmm. that if you play certain games like uh, The Quiet Year, the the tabletop game... Hmm um which is kind of about building a community over a year's time you can play that as a game that is uh, you know you have won some massive conflict and you then have a year of building a world that people might want to live in um but that is not a narrative game about hope that is a game about performing hope as players um which i think is a little bit different but yeah i think there's space for it i think that the things that we accept as safe narratives uh in video games and even in the most outlier of of indie games don't are not invested in that part i mean i think tacoma is kind of hopeful yeah
0: i was gonna say that talking obviously talking about this hearing you talk about it i kind of kept getting little pings of tacoma uh and how and how that kind of goes about its business which in, not not like wolfenstein really in in tone or anything but a little bit of that well the world sucks and we're going to try to figure things out on our own anyway that that mm-hmm. sort of again i guess it sort of comes back to like chosen family and agreeing to get along even though you're you're different kind of people and and kind of make things work even though everything sucks that's that seems like a very 2017 or, or not even 2017 but a very you know postmodern uh, hopeful narrative i
1: guess mm-hmm. uh, well i think you have to like divest yourself of a lot of to get to true hope like political hope kind of like what you were talking about with wolfenstein of like yeah. of the the fight that needs to be fought over a long time you have to get rid of things like pov characters to some degree right like yeah. to really see something hopeful in a political way that that we could imagine happening in our world or it can at least be allegorical to our world it's going to take like several people their entire life to fundamentally transform things. And games have the ability to do that, right? Theoretically, yeah, like, yeah. You, you can imagine a strategy game where that is 100% possible. Crusader Kings 100% exactly. runs on that logic. Huh. Yes, yeah. exactly, right? Um. But but we don't do that for whatever reason. <laughs> yeah, I think... You know,
2: when you were talking about, like, sort of the way screen uh, screenplays are structured, like, just narrative structure... um both for the rules of storytelling we avoid anything that's like too anticlimactic mm-hmm. you know once once the like something needs to be fucking resolved or vanquished and then you don't linger over the after effects too much of that resolution or that that vanquishing um but that is where that is where the work lies yeah. uh and yeah there and we we do tend to see games duck that um and in part because we don't we we do a bad job of glamorizing or valorizing uh the really necessary stuff required to make like to truly improve a society or or truly tackle a sort of large scale widespread problem um but it is something that would be if if you're going to have a game that's like truly politically ho- hopeful uh, you 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 have to have something to do that does that. I don't know. Crusader Kings sort of leans into it, but obviously the thing about Crusader Kings is it's all like existing. It's it's still all existing within a um. You're perpetuating a feudal system. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> Crusader Kings lefty. That's what we need. <laughs>
2: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, Crusader I mean, Commies. There, was...
0: there you go. Yes, Crusader <laughs> yeah. commies. Oh, got it. We got it.
2: Yeah, so then it would just all be about show trials.
1: Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's right. Give me the... I'll pay $19 for that expansion pack.
2: Yeah. Uh, <laughs> no, I, I... Like... Yeah, games that are truly hopeful, I don't... Yeah, games do have the power to do it, but we we tend to not want to address it uh, too much. And also, I think because it's easy to set up a story where there is some big unequivocal evil uh, that you have to fight or some major problem that has to be resolved. Um, What to do with that success is where alliances fracture, what people start to disagree about. Uh, And that's the other thing, right? Like, I don't think people want to see uh, these characters start, like, you know what I mean? Like the, the true sequel to like return of the Jedi would be watching the Rebel Alliance just kind of go to hell in a handbasket, right? (laughs) As like, okay, well, what did we mean by establishing a more fair, equitable government? And all hell would break loose. Right. Um, Well, have you both seen the new Star (laughs) Wars? No, I haven't. (laughs) Okay. Yes.
0: Okay. (laughs) Okay. because i think some of that is is somewhat relevant but obviously rob you should you should maybe if you feel like Mm -hmm. if you feel like it you should see it yeah it does feel in some ways like uh a family friendly version of of maybe addressing some of that Mm -hmm. Okay, like maybe in not in the (laughs) it's not necessarily the honest ass take that uh perhaps i would appreciate but it it I was a little bit surprised by how earnestly it took on some of those themes, some of them. But that, that's okay. You know, that's a discussion for another day. I won't, I won't, I won't, yeah. you know, poo all over that or anything. Uh,
1: but yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think, I think games that, like, did did either of you play Hyperlight Drifter all the way through? No, it has. I, I, I watched
0: think, it all the way through
1: (laughs) okay okay well okay so I I think that has a that is a hopeful game that is not great for the protagonist right but it's great for the world um it 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 you know without saying uh, too much about it in specifics it inaugurates a new era for that planet um that seems I don't know right like is it pure nihilism for one person to to not have a good time, and for everyone else to have a good time. I don't. I think that's still hopeful.
0: Yeah, I I would agree. That I guess that's what I was trying to get at with with Hob a little bit mm. about. Uh, uh, I haven't beaten it yet. I do know how it ends because I always God, I, I'm a bad person who always looks up things. Uh, but <laughs> um, some some you shades of that. Yourself. Some shades of that. I I try not to spoil myself on certain things, but other things I will inadvertently be spoiled on because I like watching. You know, Joseph Anderson videos, for example. But uh yeah. <laughs> a little bit of that. Yeah. There there's some of that. Games can can occasionally do that, uh, that sort of somewhat heavy-handed, uh, but still, I think, personally, uh fairly fairly effective, uh, like sort of nonverbal storytelling or uh nonverbal. That's not the term I'm looking for. I'm searching for a term, but you know, it's it's not obviously it's not done through dialogue or exposition, but sort of mm-hmm. the the metaphors of gameplay kind of Teach you those things. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. Thematic.
0: There you go. That mm-hmm. was the word I was looking for. I did you know I'm an editor? I edit things. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. Hold
2: okay.
0: on. <laughs> oh man. Okay. Um, unless there's more hopeful thoughts, we could move on to uh our weekend projects. Do we have more hopeful thoughts? No. Okay. Mm-hmm. Last thing I would say is not just, at the end of twenty seventeen.
1: Stardust- Rob didn't even have one.
0: Yeah. That's- <laughs> Hey, hey! You're watching some kind of Star Trek. There's hope in Star Trek sometimes, occasionally. But uh, Cam, Cam, I'm going to give you since you're our honored guest. Would you like to go first with your uh, with your weekend project with your endorsement?
1: Um, gosh, can it just be anything that that I'm working on? Anything that you're enjoying? Yeah, it's going to be Player Unknown's Battlegrounds.
0: Oh, hey!
1: Because I'm always working on it. Okay. Every day I get better and better, or whatever that. That thing is
0: that's a the, good feeling the,
1: yeah. that the guy says yeah no i've been making those um the edited videos with the replay editor oh for that's Player right oh. i've been
2: yeah i've been traveling so i haven't seen a lot of them but yeah. i've seen them getting passed around twitter mm-hmm.
1: there's a there's a great uh well I, I think it's great but a great thread on the waypoint forums about it where we're talking about making them but yeah that replay editor has like changed my whole life, or not replay editor, but replay viewer that you can then mm. manually capture footage out of, and then you can edit it into videos. Oh, wow. And I enjoy making edited content because it's a fully <laughs> 3D replay editor, so you can kind of set up, you know, make a camera set up effectively, and then- oh, shit follow characters around or you know lock the camera somewhere and capture a gunfight uh, i find it very uh, interesting and very fulfilling are you
2: experimenting with different aesthetics or do you have sort of a
1: um, a style a house style <laughs> mm, i don't know i i've not done any like footage editing yet in the sense of like yeah. uh changing colors or anything like that or adding much graphics or text or things like that it's mostly just like trying to as artfully as i can capture the the kind of zany action of that game because it's an incredibly goofy game right like yeah it's silly um so just that that's been my thing Ugh.
0: i i'm uh, i'm still jealous of people uh i, I need to play it with the, now that it has full uh, controller support because of course my my fucked up hand I can't play uh, mouse and keyboard games but
1: mm-hmm.
0: I ah uh, I want I do want to play it it is a fascinating phenomenon to me it's just utterly fascinating but I do fear I've I've completely missed the boat and now I will just be uh, you know <laughs> just like absolute crap and everybody has moved on with strategies and I'm just like how do I shoot what what button do I press and then I'm dead but one day one day Rob Rob what are you watching, playing, viewing, enjoying? What's what's your so, project? All
2: right, so I started watching Voyager, but I think we should hold off on that until I've watched a little more. Okay. And, and speak from a little more. Like I am three episodes in. Oh
0: shit! Okay. Yeah, yeah. Um. All, right.
2: all I can say is like, damn, Jerry Goldsmith wrote a damn fine opening <laughs> uh, piece of music for for Voyager. It's I think so it might good. have the best intro yeah. of any of the uh, Star Treks. Uh no so I'm gonna, this is not an endorsement it's just something that like I treasure every year.
0: Okay. okay.
2: Um, Ben Crosby and Dan uh and Danny Kay in uh Michael Curtiz's White Christmas. Oh. It is a bad movie. <laughs> uh, like and it, what what fascinates me is Curtiz was a good director like. Curtiz directed a lot of great (laughs) films. uh, You know, one of which was Casablanca. Yeah. Um, But White Christmas is weirdly incompetent. Uh, (laughs) And I just find it, it is a fascinating cultural artifact on so many levels. Because the other thing that every year I wonder more and more. Was somebody on that project trying to make. Uh, Like, was somebody on that project basically trying to queer this, like, super, like, Republican, conservative, (laughs) like, uh, fucking holiday trash fire?
0: Oh, queer. Was somebody in
2: there trying to be like, I'm going to make this thing as gay as humanly possible?
0: (laughs) I wish. (laughs) Please go on. Uh, I love this.
2: (laughs) No, it's like, I I mean, there's, let's see, there's Danny Kaye's just, like raw terror and overt dread of uh like female sexuality uh, during <laughs> during the one scene where uh his romantic interest tries to corner him and like start a relationship and get him to commit to her um it involves him like Backpedaling furiously against a wall, and not it's Danny Kaye. It's hilarious. It's funny. He's a great physical comedian. But then there's the fact that like she's sort of advancing on him like a spider, and he's patently terrified. And it's like it, it crosses a line from reading as like sort of romantic hesitancy into like, oh no, he's not into this at all. Like yeah. he, he he doesn't want this. Uh, there's just the bizarre. Like they're working with Vista Vision. Uh, which was, I think, their, like, you know, Technicolor-adjacent process. <laughs> uh, so it was the first movie shot in VistaVision. It's a big thing at the start. It's the sort of opening splash screen. Uh, Paramount is very proud of VistaVision. <laughs> and maybe they just didn't trust the, the... Or they didn't know how the film would, like, show certain things. So the makeup is all fucked up.
0: Oh, no. <laughs> um, and, like... <laughs> That's so true. <laughs> so,
2: like... <laughs> Bing Crosby in every scene has like just the heaviest fucking eyeshadow that like I've ever like I mean Pris from Blade Runner might be like, eh, like, you know, go easy, Bucko. Uh it's it's just it's not it, but the thing is, like it's this really heavy, like uh, you know, eyeshadow and eyeliner that really exaggerates his eyes, and it's meant to exaggerate uh, you know, his 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 eyes, his blue eyes. Uh but it ends up actually like exaggerating his lashes. Uh and the entire thing has this feeling of like uh well this is going to be like he's he's just a costume change away from like going drag queen. <laughs>
0: totally. And then the
2: movie literally has that dance number uh where in fact they do dress up as um Rosemary Clooney and um oh god I forget the actress who plays her sister. Uh but you know they they basically do a reprise of the sisters musical number uh but it's the two guys in in drag. Um yeah it's just it's it's a bizarre it's it's a bizarre creation the more you watch it the less it works. Um <laughs> uh, because like there are major plot points that are forgotten literally 5 minutes later. <laughs> Um, like, and they're in the same shot, like there's a train set, there's an entire incident aboard a train where like, the reason they all end up meeting together in the dining car and singing a song is because the women took the men's, uh, their, their, uh, sleeping car. It's a major plot point. (laughs) Literally the next shot is like the two women being like coming out of, uh, a general general seating area basically the shot the the actual sleeper car is still in the shot the exact door we saw them come out of earlier a scene earlier is still there plot point completely forgotten now now everyone is sleeping in bunks whatever um but i think the the other thing that really fascinates me about it though is that it's made in like the 50s and it has this, like, desperate, forced World War II nostalgia uh, that I find kind of amazing. Like, it's meant to be a song celebrating the wartime hit, White Christmas. But it is also, like, they took the themes of best years of our lives and were <laughs> like, oh, this is just still, stu- it's still too complicated and ugly. Let's just make it as rank sentimentalist as possible. Like we are going like literally all these guys do is just like miss the army and how great it was and how they're all best friends still to this day. And nothing bad ever happened. Uh, The war was great Uh, and the officers were all tremendous. And, uh, you know, obviously now, uh, you know, we're kind of dealing with the disappointment of uh, civilian life and we know it's disappointing, But maybe if we just do our duty as Americans and just settle the fuck down uh, and have kids and (laughs) make sure women give up their careers, we can all be okay. Well,
0: that is, um, I think, without exaggeration, my favorite read on White Christmas (laughs) that I have ever heard in my life. and that is the first time I've ever actually wanted to go back and watch it after after hearing you speak about how how gay this movie really is.
2: It's it's a fascinating shit show. God. Like it it's there's like yeah, there's the crypto queer elements. Uh <laughs> there's the like overt like Eisenhower-esque republicanism of uh, of the film. Uh, and then yeah, there's just the mid 50s like cultural malaise that you're seeing. Like shit, you know you're in a cultural malaise when like white Christmas is being produced.
0: <laughs> God,
2: like that's that's the canary dropping dead <laughs> on your on your society.
0: The canary came in, dropped on your your fruitcake, like yeah. threw up and died. That's the like, <laughs> yeah. Wow. <laughs> Wow. Oh my god. Uh, I don't know how I can follow that. Oh my god. Um well I've watched a lot of movies lately. Uh it's it's what I've been doing lately. We have the you know the nice writers guild screeners, so we get uh, yeah. lots of movies. I watched disaster artists last night. It was pretty great, but I do want to talk to you about my favorite new trash can Eclair. Rob, I want yeah. you to I want you to get ready. I want you to get excited. I started watching Dark Matter. Which is a
2: questionable decision.
0: Oh my God, I love it so much. Okay, 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 so it's a uh, it's what we refer to. Uh, uh, Cam, I don't know if you're you're familiar with this term. Um, but when Rob and I really enjoy a, a piece of budget entertainment, uh, especially mm-hmm. budget entertainment, I think, uh, mm-hmm. and we really like it, especially sci-fi. It doesn't have to be, but usually it's sci-fi. Low budget uh, sci-fi entertainment that we really, really enjoy. We refer to it as a trash can eclair.
2: Mm-hmm. Uh,
0: I, where did we come up with this? Is this like a Bioshock thing?
2: That's a Seinfeld thing. Actually, oh, okay, it was it's Seinfeld, um, and I, I view it more as a, a just a truly shameful pleasure. Okay, uh, okay, of, of any stripe, but it's from that episode where George spots a delicious-looking eclair <laughs> in somebody else's trash <laughs> and is caught fishing it out and eating it.
1: So, so these are oh the God. the Lexes and the enemy minds yes. of, of the world. Okay. Yes,
0: absolutely, and also okay. dark matter. Sure. Um, because this is like a low. I okay, it has some budget. Somebody knew how to use After Effects at the very least. Um, <laughs> so they got an intro. That's like- <laughs> what you're telling me. <laughs> Somebody Jesus. at least had some experience with After oh. Effects. <laughs> um fairly low budget i believe canadian sci-fi series i'm it almost sure positive this canadian. is a toronto product uh <laughs> where the premise is actually pretty cool it's it's not it's i would call it farscape adjacent and the writing is nowhere near i think farscape is genuinely great i would not call farscape yeah. a trash can of claire it certainly uh, has the budget but it was also from 20 years ago almost so you know whatever um Certainly, Farscape is not, like, a high-budget show, but I think the writing was actually, like, a cut above uh, most of this. But this, uh, you know, has a pretty cool premise that I would call Farscape adjacent. It is a group of people wake up on a spaceship and their memories are erased. They don't know who they are. They don't know what they're supposed to be doing. And much of the show is them sort of figuring out what the hell. Now, early, early on, like, in the pilot episode, they learned that they were all criminals. They were all, you know murderers and thieves and all sorts of stuff and they're basically hired to be mercenaries across the you know the galaxy and it has a very cyberpunky kind of setup uh you know the universe is basically ruled by like ruling families and also uh mega corporations they they're they're not shy about- every
2: city is basically a alleyway bazaar yep. located <laughs> inside a soundstage yep. <laughs> uh and every planet is an industrial park.
0: It sure is. And they even refer to space stations as like the space station, which is my favorite thing about this show. It's not like, oh, we were on Tigerian Seven. No, it's like, what this is what happened on the space station. <laughs> it's so fucking shameless. I love it to death. I love it to death. Oh my god. And one of the characters, so um I actually I love the characters. I really do. There is a a lady who who is like uh, the captain she's she's number two they named themselves after the order they woke up in but she kind of took charge so she's kind of the captain her name is number two and uh she is fearless with her sexuality which i really enjoy she is like sex is for fun i have sex with who i want to and it's like kind of refreshing and cool in that way also a little bit farscape adjacent which i appreciate uh, and she's also like a murderous kickboxer which is great so of course i enjoy that Uh, there's, like, a pretty boy guy who is, is, like, tries to be the morality on the ship. He tries to always do the right thing. so
2: fucking boring. I could not handle that guy. Oh,
0: I mean, yeah. He is, he sucks, but he's, like, pretty, and he gets made fun of a lot for just being pretty, which I appreciate. There's the, like, mercenary dude, like, the white dude who's just like, yeah, fuck everything, uh, who's a lot of fun. I kind of like that guy. Uh, there is the, the probably... The character who is the most problematic is uh, a Japanese dude who basically comes from a samurai family. Uh, <laughs> How
1: which, does he know that? Having no memory? He,
0: he figures oh. that out pretty early on.
2: Well, How does he figure it out, Danielle? Uh, he, What's his clue? He figures that he, it out?
0: he has a whole room full of swords.
2: No. <laughs> <laughs> and he can't help. He's just like, I am compelled to train with this fucking sword. Oh, <laughs> he does
0: all day is trained with his so. Oh my God, it's so sweet.
2: I do not stupid. endorse this to be clear. It's like so I think oh I do not think the Claire was resting on a clean surface <laughs> service within the within the uh, receptacle. I think okay. this thing is contaminated.
0: I mean it might be, but I love it. So like I have genuinely been like, oh, just one more episode, just one more episode. My girlfriend uh, put on the first episode just to try it. And I was like, oh, somebody told me to watch this. And I was enjoying the hell out of it. And she was like, I can't wait to turn this off. <laughs> so I've been watching it, like, when she's not around or when she's around. And she'll be like, oh, God, this again. And then she'll be watching it. And she'll be like, Danielle, this is so stupid. And I'm like, but it's so great. Now, here's what's great about it. Let me let me be clear. I think this show knows how stupid it is. I really think it's pretty tongue in cheek. Except for the ninja stuff. That is really stupid. Like, genuinely, it, that is so stupid, and, like, borderline, like, eh. like, it definitely left a weird taste in my mouth that, like, oh, the Japanese dude is a samurai, like, come on, guys, this is the future, um, I think the characters are, are otherwise pretty interesting and fun, uh, there's a dude who's, like, uh, medic slash pilot who has an interesting backstory where he was apparently, like, a revolutionary who got blamed for, he inadvertently committed an act of terrorism under false auspices, basically, uh, and he wants to kind of atone for that. So there's a lot of this very, very tropey. Like it's dealing in every trope you've ever heard of in sci-fi. But I don't know. It's 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 working for me right now. There's also, and this there's- is this is my favorite part of the show. So, uh, longtime uh, listeners of the show know how I feel about Lost Girl, the trashiest of all trash can eclairs. Uh, uh, a show yeah. I I adore with all of my heart and all of my love. Now, the lead in that show. Her hot girlfriend, her hot doctor girlfriend, Doctor Lauren, plays. I mean, it's not the doctor girlfriend. It's the woman who plays her, Zoe yeah. Zoe Palmer, is the android on this ship. Who is
2: okay? The android's good. The
0: android is so good. She's playing like basically a data type. You know, the the robot who kind of enjoys human things and wants to understand humans better. Uh, but she's sort of like adorably clueless all the time, and always does like really cute things. She gets really jealous. When a sex robot, uh, played by Ruby Rose, comes onto the ship. <laughs> this is so good. I'm sorry. I love this shit so much. This, give me a, a dozen of these trash can of Claire's. Um Yeah. It is a shameless, 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 tropey ass sci-fi show. Uh, but it is just what I need right now. It has been a long, terrible year. And this is like this is just like eating candy for me. This is just like give me those peanut M and M's, give me those Junior Mints, just sugar in my face. Like I am, I am yeah, enjoying I, this.
2: There is something watchable about it. I got several episodes in, but then I had like a like a premonition of how I would feel if I watched the rest of this series, <laughs> oh, uh, no. and I was like, I need to get out of this right now because <laughs> uh, I just can't. I just can't. Yeah. It 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 feels like every actor is like every actor received notes like okay so this is the this is the performance from Firefly that you're you'll be aping.
0: <laughs> totally. that it, you're not wrong in the slightest. <laughs> not in in the slightest. Yeah. Like So. It's trash.
2: Oh. It's also on Netflix, right? Oh
0: yeah, that's that's how I'm watching cuz we my girlfriend bought the first episode on Amazon cuz we didn't even look. She was just like, "Oh, somebody said this is interesting." And then she was like, I forbid you. Not forbid you obviously, but she's like, don't pay for this. Like watch it on Netflix.
2: <laughs> Do not give these Do
0: people. Do not money. give this. Maybe show if you give them the money,
2: there would have been a season 4. Yeah, that's the other oh, thing. Yeah. Uh, important notice. <laughs> yeah. This story will never end. I know. Uh, it will never pay off. Ugh. Uh, just
0: <sighs> I know.
2: Buyer beware. I'm looking at a movie. Wait, what? I I'm, I I'm no, there kidding. will not be a movie. I'm just kidding. Oh. <laughs>
0: I'm so sorry for giving you
2: hope. hope, Like, what movie?
0: (laughs) I got so excited. Yeah, Yeah. it's about the
2: android, Danielle. It's great.
0: (gasps) Oh my God. It's just, there's something really wonderful. Not only that character and that performance, but just the meta of like, I genuinely love that this woman plays all these roles on these shitty, trashy shows that are so (laughs) wonderful. Like, legitimately, that is a little bit of like, a secret fantasy of mine to be like a beloved character on these shitty crappy TV
2: beloved shows. character actress Mar- Margo Martindale. Exactly. Yeah.
0: I mean, let's be clear. I don't think Zoe Palmer is quite, quite on the Margo Martindale.
2: <laughs> no, scale. no I, I guess I wouldn't <laughs> I would say, that, say that myself. But She's like
0: a beloved character actress in trash can of Clares, And that to me, life goal right there. That is a life. She brings joy to at least thousands at least thousands. I don't know if it's a 1000000s she She'll never millions. have to buy
2: a drink at a small comic con ever That's again. That's
0: correct. She'll never. She will always be loved. She will always be loved. Thank you, Zoe Palmer. <laughs> Thank you for your work. If you uh, you definitely don't listen to the show, it's okay. Anyway, her
1: name uh, on the show is just the android. Yep. Oh, <laughs> yep.
0: <laughs> Everything you needed to know about dark matter, right there, on the spaceship. The android did this. <laughs>
2: Well, we did a great job, everybody. Uh, uh, we've, we've pointed our listeners toward White Christmas <laughs> and Dark Matter, and then we've we've clued you in on a little something called uh, Player Unknown's Battlegrounds. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if you've heard of it. Uh, so we're we're really we're really making taste uh, this week.
0: So happy! Oh, I'm so happy, and I think with that oh, that beautiful note, oh, we've made so much joy. Uh, it's time for us to head out. And enjoy our weekends and, and uh, you know, do a seance for a, a better year in 2018, I think. Uh, thank you so much, Cameron, for being on the show. Really appreciate it. Uh, is there a place where you'd like to uh, point people towards your work?
1: Brr, uh, waypoint.advice.com.
0: Okay. Uh, every Friday. Every Friday. That. Every Friday. I don't know if you've heard
1: about that, too. Uh, oh. And then uh, Twitter. 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 Twitter.com Twitter? slash C. All right. Awesome. I, it's probably in the show notes or something, right? It, I bet. It yeah. Probably
0: will be. Yeah, I'll make sure it is. <laughs> but yeah, just just in case, you know, it's always fun to, you know, mm-hmm. give your little shouts there. Uh, thank you again. Really appreciate uh, your classing up the show, uh, oh, which I always do me. my best to undo. Uh, just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> but this episode of Idle Weekend uh, was produced by yours truly and hosted on the Idle Thumbs Network.
2: You can learn more about Idle Weekend at idleweekend.net and send us questions for our weekend correspondence at. Questions at IdleWeekend.net. keep up with the latest from us, follow us on Twitter at IdleWeekend.
0: We really do appreciate you listening uh, to our show. We really appreciate you telling your friends, enemies, family, chosen family, uh, characters that you really like that have domestic situations. Whoever it is in this world that you think might enjoy Idle Weekend, if you tell them about us, we'd really appreciate that. That means a lot to us. So for Rob Zagni and for Cameron Councilman, this is Danielle Riendo wishing you the finest, Idle Weekends.
2: She's called the Android. Uh, and then the joke is that she's an Android and she has a really like odd robotic affect and doesn't understand. Like, you know,
1: Data, did you like Data? Did yeah. you like that bit? No, I get what you're saying. So yeah. she's like, like a robot, right? Yeah. Okay. Like, like just
2: robot is all hell. hmm. And, like, keep, people keep being like, hey, can you empathize and be like a person? And the answer is kind of, but in a really roboty way. She can smell mm-hmm.
0: your pheromones, so she knows when people are uh, scared or attracted to each other.
1: I bet she says that, too, right? Yeah, she, I, like, verbalizes yeah. it immediately? She, mm. she, tells she does. She does.
2: Damn. <laughs> it's like, you, you, you know, I think mean, you've seen the show, clearly. Yeah. No, I mean, I've heard the first.
1: Uh, that's I'm actually co-financing the, uh, the fourth <laughs> the season movie. film. Oh, so yeah. That's why
2: there's a movie. Yeah. I mean, I
1: didn't want to spoil it. That was the, I can't, I'm NDA'd up, of course. (laughs) (laughs) Had to roll it back.